Hi, I'm David Stoker, and I want to welcome you to the Better Life and Recovery hashtag Hope Dealer Movement podcast. As a visible and vocal member of the recovery community since 2009, I'm frequently asked questions and for advice from people all the time. Some are curious, some are still using, some are in recovery, and some people just care about somebody who's currently struggling with a hurt habit or hangout. If people in my community have those questions, I guarantee that people everywhere are looking for answers as well. We started this podcast to give you answers and support because not only is recovery real, it is amazing. Hope you enjoy the show. So welcome back to another episode of Better Life and Recovery. I'm your host, David Stoker, and today we're going to be talking about defining some of the terms many people, I think, find hard to understand. We're also going to talk about something that's frustrated me this week. In fact, we may talk about a couple things that have frustrated me this week. But the first thing I really want to jump into is the fact that we have a lot of people who are getting subpar care now uh, thanks to, I think, people misunderstanding a couple definitions. So I think that we have a lot of chronic pain patients who truly need medication who are being hurt because of the laser focus on the opioid epidemic that we have right now. And we're also going to get into the opioid epidemic and why I really don't like that term and some other things around that. But basically, we have people now that are being punished because of other people. And I think part of the problem is people don't understand the difference between dependence and addiction. Uh, like, like I just got through talking to about 750 uh in-home healthcare aides, uh, people that are going in and a lot of times they're working hospice, they're working uh, palliative care in houses. And I had an opportunity to go in and do 10 in-services for their people that are working. They do in-services twice a year for four hours and they gave me an hour to come in and talk at all 10 of the in-services they did around South, uh, Southwest and Central Missouri. And when I talked to these in-home healthcare aides, uh, these LPNs and nurses uh, about the difference between dependence and addiction. Unfortunately, a lot of people don't realize that there's a difference between dependence and addiction. For instance, I start every morning off with a cup of Death Wish coffee, which I don't get paid to advertise, but I I will tell you now it's 472 milligrams of caffeine in an eight ounce cup. And that kind of gets me kickstarted. And when I drink that coffee, get that caffeine in me, it gives me pep to my step. I get up with a smile on my face. I get to wherever I'm going early and people are glad I'm there. Now, if I were to not have that cup of coffee, then I am a little depressed, a little depleted. And by about noon, one o'clock, I will literally have a splitting migraine. And that's my body detoxing. It's my body craving the caffeine. The funny thing is almost everybody I know is dependent on something. Uh, Caffeine, sugar is another big one. I've talked to people who have done like Whole30 and the paleo diet, and they've talked to me about what it's like detoxing from sugar, which they say is seven times more addictive than cocaine. And because of its uh, role in obesity, kills more people than drugs. And yet we don't have a problem with it, but a lot of people are dependent on that. Dependent isn't a bad thing. Just like a lot of people are dependent on medications, they've taken a medication and their body has come to rely on that medication. 
So if they stop taking it, they're going to have cravings, they're going to want to withdrawals, there can be negative consequences, especially some, say like benzodiazepines, which if you don't get titrated off properly can actually kill you. But basically, if somebody is dependent on something, that means their body has come to need it and that it gives them a better quality of life. I would argue me being dependent on caffeine, caffeine gives me a better quality of life. In fact, talk to the people around me. They would tell you that caffeine probably gives me getting caffeine gives them a better quality of life too. Addiction, on the other hand, is not me. You know, if I drink a cup of coffee, I show up to, to work on early, not even on time. I show up early with a pep of my step smile on my face, right? Now, if I were to have a beer today, it's going to be about six beers and then it's going to turn to shots. Eventually, I'm going to put a needle in my arm. Um, I'm going to lose my wife. I am going to not be able to see my kids. I'm probably going to go to jail. And if when I get out of jail after losing my wife and rights to my kids and my job, I go straight to the bar or straight to the dealer's house and get more, consume more, that's addiction. Addiction is continuing to use despite negative consequences. So... We're looking at people who have become dependent on medication that they need to give them a better quality of life, right? Um, an example of this, I went out to eat recently, I think it was about a week and a half ago, with uh, a close fam family friend of my, my wife's. And as we were talking, they started talking to me about how the crush on opioids has impacted them. Uh, this person has neuropathy of the feet and is in constant pain. And was talking to me about the fact that whenever uh, they started passing some of these laws, they set a, a, a federal guideline for pain medication. And because he was over that guideline, they have now had to reduce the amount of pain medication that he's on. And now he is in so much pain that it's hard for him to even think. And on top of that, because of the synergistic effect, which basically means the amplification of... And really quick, we'll just explain how opioids work. Uh, opioids, whenever we use them, when they get on the other side of the blood-brain barrier, they turn into morphine molecules. Those morphine molecules, in turn, bind to delta, uh, to the kappa, the delta, and the mu uh, opioid receptors in the brain. And from there, it does three things. Uh, it eases pain, it acts as a euphoric, and it depresses the respiratory system, which literally means it slows down, and if there's enough there, stops your breathing. So, because benzodiazepines have a synergistic effect with the respiratory depression, he was taken off of the benzodiazepines he was on for his panic attacks, which makes it even harder for him to be around people now. And on top of that, because gabapentin has been found to be misused by some people because it extends and elevates the euphoric effect of the opioid, he has been taken off his gabapentin. And as he's sitting there talking to me, he's like, you know, I'm getting to the point where I think my only option is to get my feet amputated. Because if I get my feet amputated, the pain will be gone and then I'll be able to cope with life. How sad is that, that somebody is literally looking at getting their feet amputated because they're no longer able to get the amount of medication they need and the various medications they need to give them a better quality of life. And I think if we would look at dependence and addiction as two completely different things, we would see that, you know what, he was dependent on his medication. He's not addicted to his medication. He needs that medication so he can have a quality of life, a life worth living. 
The problem now is who knows where he goes from here, right? We know that somebody with undertreated or untreated chronic pain is up to five times more likely to die by suicide. Think of that hopelessness where you're stuck with this pain day in and day out, absolutely nothing you can do to escape it. Eventually that hopelessness sets in and then somebody feels like they have no other option. And what sucks is he's being put in that position because our government and the guidelines that they're making are unable to distinguish between somebody who truly needs and somebody who has cravings and detox and therefore may need treatment. So to me, that's one of the things I really wanted to do today is I wanted to say there's a huge difference between dependence and addiction. And unfortunately, there's also a difference in the way somebody with a chronic health problem and somebody who is thought of as being an addict or a junkie might be treated. It's why I hate those terms, right? Really great research by Robert Ashford and some of the people he works with about how medical professionals treat even somebody who's referred to as having a substance use disorder and somebody referred to as an addict or a junkie differently. And that really, it's why I'm so big on people matching their language to their environment, right? If you want to sit around in a meeting and talk about yourself being an addict or a junkie, that's awesome, right? Go right ahead. You're sitting in there where people understand what that means. But when I'm in the community, I've got to remember this isn't just about me. This is about a bunch of other people out there too, right? There's 22 million people with an active substance use disorder, not to mention all the other people that may be impacted. They say that there's a minimum of seven people impacted by every person with a substance use disorder. So now we're going from 22 million to seven plus one, eight times 22. So 176 million people. And then if we want to add in the other 23 and a half million people in long-term recovery, now all of a sudden we're looking at the entire population of the United States being impacted by that. So if a medical professional treats somebody differently because of them being called an addict or a junkie, maybe it's not a bad thing for us to refer to ourselves as people with a substance use disorder if that might have a positive impact on people that are still actively using or people that might get caught up in the problem. And unfortunately, uh, Julie's family friend is getting caught up in the problem because we're not differentiating. That bothers me. Our focus is not only hurting in some cases, it's literally killing people. Uh, next, I think that we are missing a lot of people because we're so laser focused on this opioid epidemic. Uh, for starters, if we focus on opioids, we're going to miss a lot of other things. Yes, if we look at opioids, uh, numbers for opioid deaths started going up in probably the 90s and have continued to elevate. And now with some of the synthetics, there's been a real boost because of fentanyl, carfentanyl, acetylfentanyl, sufentanyl, a bunch of the other uh, synthetics that are out there. But we've also seen increases in cocaine deaths. We've seen increases in benzodiazepine deaths, in methamphetamine deaths. I mean, I live in Greene County. Uh, if you look over the last five years, more years than not, we've had more people die from methamphetamine than we have die from opioids. Not to mention, when we look at opioids, we're losing around, I think in 2017, we lost around 40,000, 40, 45,000 people. Alcohol 
Chronic alcohol use killed 88,000 people in that same time. So we're also missing them too. And I think a big reason, of course, we're missing alcohol is because alcohol is socially acceptable. And I'm perfectly fine for that. Uh, I don't have a problem with people who drink recreationally. Unfortunately, when some people drink, it impacts their prefrontal cortex, which is the decision-making part of their brain, right? It's part of your brain directly between your temples, right behind your eyes. It's It controls your uh, executive thinking. It's part of your brain that goes, ah, oh, that's a really bad idea. I should probably not do that. Unfortunately, when we drink, it, it starts to shut that part of your brain down. It's why when I was a bartender, I can't tell you how many times I broke up fights between somebody who, before they'd even left the house, had agreed on a designated driver, given that person keys, and said, hey, you're drinking sodas and driving us home. About 1 o'clock, 1.30 at the bar, that drunk person is now fighting the designated driver to get their keys back. Because when they were sober and their prefrontal cortex was actually working... Man, it did not sound like a good idea for them to drive. Now that their prefrontal cortex has been impacted, all of a sudden, it's my car. By God, I'm going to drive it. And those mistakes happen. Now we look at alcohol, which when I'm in a room, I always say, hey, raise your hand if you have a PhD. There may be a couple of hands that go up. Generally, there's none. And I'm like, well, you know what? A lot of the people that are making those commercials have master's degrees and PhDs and marketing and sociology and psychology, and they know how to make it as enticing as possible. It's why it's these hot, sexy people dancing, having a really good time instead of like Bertha holding Helga's hair up while she throws up in a toilet at three o'clock in the morning. We don't want to show the reality of the disease. This is one of the reasons that in Europe it is illegal for alcohol to advertise on TV because they've seen the impact that it has on kids. We show enough commercials and all of a sudden we have kids that go, you know what, this isn't that bad of an idea, maybe I should try this. And next thing you know, Johnny's having a couple drinks, here's a kid that maybe never would have said yes to a harder drug, but after a couple drinks, his prefrontal cortex, which isn't even fully formed until he's 25, so it's still, it's still getting fully online, it's not even fully online yet, as a teenager, now all of a sudden after a couple drinks and the cutie there in the corner that he, he's got a crush on does a line or pops a pill, he's going he's gonna to do one too because that part of his brain that will always say, no, don't do that, that's a bad idea, it's not working, right? It's been shut down by the alcohol. So, so I do have a, some problem with alcohol. I can tell you now that according to research, if we can stop a kid from drinking until he is 18, if we can stop a kid from smoking weed, trying other drugs until he's 18, he is up to seven times less likely to develop a substance use disorder. What that means is, to, 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 to use some of that, that language out there, uh, nobody really likes Somebody that, uh, God, I hate the language, but literally nobody likes the alcoholic, right? Even though it's socially acceptable. You know, it's perfectly fine. I can walk into work and be like, oh my gosh. Ah. In fact, I remember walking into to work once and one of my friends being, oh my gosh, how did you get home last night? You could barely walk. And I was like, yeah, that's why I drove my car. Ha! And we laughed about it. We laughed about the fact that I had gotten behind the wheel of a car in a condition that I shouldn't have even... I couldn't even walk in very well and had driven home. 
My boss laughed about it too. My general manager was there at the restaurant and they're laughing too. We thought it was this funny thing. Imagine if I'd have walked in and they'd be like, oh, so, so what'd you do last night? Like, oh, I shot some heroin. All of a sudden, I don't even have a job. You know, yet here I am and I have literally risked other people's lives getting behind the wheel of a car in an intoxicated condition and everybody thinks it's funny. And you can say, well, heroin's illegal. Well, so is getting behind the wheel of a car under the influence. And yet that's socially acceptable. So I think part of the social acceptability of alcohol is also leading to some of the problems that we see with harder drugs. I think it's giving kids an introduction to that. But anyway, so all of this to say, I definitely think that we have a laser focus on opioids that's impacting us. We talk about the opioid epidemic. Yeah, I looked up the word epidemic. And epidemic means a widespread occurrence of an infectious disease in a community at a particular time. An epidemic is an event in which a disease is actively spreading, right? Um, A pandemic, on the other hand, relates to a geographic spread and is used to describe like a disease that affects a whole country. And I think if we were to say a substance use crisis, that might catch something, right? Um, We have an addiction crisis, Uh, We might even say we have a a death crisis, an early death crisis uh, because of obesity deaths, because of suicide deaths on the increase, because of not just opioids, but all the other drugs that are continuing every single year to ratchet up death counts, right? So that could be a real problem. But then I ran into uh, a word I really liked uh, that I probably should have known before and I may have even learned back in grad school. But it didn't pop into my head until I was reading a uh, Facebook post that Brent Canode uh, from Oregon made. If you don't know Brent, you know what? Follow Brent. Brent does amazing things in Oregon, uh, the entire state. And he's done a lot of really amazing things in uh, Portland, too. So I kind of Facebook stalk him. We're friends on Facebook, but I always tell people being a friend on Facebook really doesn't mean a whole lot. It just means uh, for me that I like what you stand for or I like some of the things you say or maybe we've been friends for a really long time. But in Brent's case, it means that, man, I've kind of watched him from afar and hopefully one of these days at one of the conferences I go to, I'll actually get a chance to meet him. I'd love to get down and uh, have an opportunity to actually interview him for an episode of 10 Questions if that opportunity ever arose where we're at the same place at the same time. So good guy. Um... He's also involved with the first ever uh, recovery magazine. They actually now have a peer-reviewed journal that is just for recovery. So like the guy, follow the guy, um, friend the guy, look at some of the stuff he posts, look at the work he does and the dedication and passion and compassion and empathy that he displays for people with substance use disorders and people, um, you know, kind of the people that other people have given up on. Right. I I think that's kind of what I like about uh, where I'm at and the things I get to do is I am there to support the people other people have given up on. And that's what he does, too. And he talked about a syndemic. 
Now, a syndemic, it's also known as a synergistic epidemic, is the aggregation of two or more concurrent or sequential epidemics or disease clusters in a population with biological interactions, which exacerbate the prognosis and burden of disease. Wow, that's a lot of like 25 cent words right there. So basically what we're saying is that a syndemic involves health disparities and disease. So we would look at, say... Um, substance use disorder. But we would also look at the fact that substance use disorders can also be impacted by other things. Some of the things that, uh, that Brent talked about were poverty, stress, joblessness, structural injustice. So when we have all these other things which create kind of a perfect storm, right? Poverty, joblessness, stress, uh, Man, we could also add uh, undiagnosed or untreated mental health disorders, uh, chronic multi-episodic trauma that has never been addressed, structural injustices where we have people of color and people from poor communities that are constantly catching the brunt uh, of all social major social problems in our country. Now, all of a sudden, we have a perfect storm for people who want to numb and escape. And this is where I would look at, like I talk about, uh, there's a lot of people, they don't have a substance use problem, even though from the onset, people would look at them and be like, man, they have a substance use disorder. These people have a really bad drug problem. I'll use just a a quick mini testimony from my life as an example. My first memory being molested when I was a kid at probably three, and that went on for several years. Growing up in a house where my dad had a drinking problem. And fifth grade being dropped off at my grandpa's by my mom, moving from Peoria, Illinois to a little place called Round the Mountain Road that was about an hour bus ride from Branson Public Schools and living with a grandpa who would literally beat me and then call into school and say, hey, he's going to help me in the field this week and not let me go back to school until the cuts and bruises had healed. So that was my childhood. And then the summer before seventh grade, my dad got custody of me. I moved to a little town called Highland, Illinois, about 30 minutes outside of East St. Louis in Illinois. My dad worked overnights. My dad went to work. I took a walk, bumped into a kid about my age. We started talking. His big brother called us over. His big brother asked me a question I think there's only one answer to. Are you cool? And I was like, yeah, of course I'm cool. And then he said, do you smoke? And I was like, yeah, because I've been stealing my grandpa's cigarettes for the last year. And then they passed around something that wasn't a cigarette. And about the second or third time I hit it, I stopped thinking about the abuse. The next night I met up with the same group of kids. They introduced me to alcohol and I found the same thing with alcohol. The more I drank, the less I hurt and the less I thought about all of the things that had been done to me and how I had been not unprotected by the people that were supposed to love and protect me. And I loved it. And I found out that if I stayed in that intoxicated state, not only could those people not hurt me, not only did the past not hurt me, but nobody could hurt me today. So in all honesty, I never had a drug problem. I had a drug solution, right? Drugs solved my problems. They helped me numb myself to the post-traumatic stress disorder. And they helped me regulate between alcohol, marijuana, mini thins, eventually meth, eventually opioids. They helped me regulate my bipolar disorder by taking uh, non-medications, by taking drugs instead of medications because those things had never been diagnosed and those things had never been addressed. 
So I think in a simdemic, that's what we have too, is we have people who have found a solution when they've been hurt. They're living a life that has left them less than hopeful. In a lot of cases, hopeless, right? In a lot of cases, people uh, that were treated like dirt, were treated like the scum of the earth. We feel like we don't matter. Uh, one of my friends, Chris Wilson, had written a book, and uh, he in, in that book he talks about these kids that are called the leftovers, I believe, and I really like that. Uh, because I think that's how a lot of us are treated. We're not treated as the main course. We're not treated as dessert. We're not even treated as an appetizer or a salad. We're treated as the leftovers, whatever's there that nobody really wanted that's left over at the end of the day. And that's, that's, how, that, that's what a lot of us are. And a lot of times we have become that because we have put up walls to keep everybody out because we don't want them to see us hurting. Or we have become a chameleon and put on this happy face, right? I think of that Smokey Robinson song, Tears of a Clown, right? Because everybody sees me smiling and laughing, even though I am dead inside. I am crying inside. I am hopeless inside. I am physically, emotionally, spiritually drained inside. And yet this is what I show people. And then I use, and using kicks up those those uh, uh, neurotransmitters and, you know, I mean, it kicks it up uh, dopamine, uh, serotonin, norepinephrine, oxytocin, all those feel-good uh, chemicals in our brain. So we like them, right? And, and that's how substance use starts off as that choice. But over time, and nothing negative happens, right? I used, I had a drug solution for years that worked for me. And by the time negative consequences set in, I tried to stop using and I went into detox and I would do anything I could possibly think of to make myself feel better and not be in that detox state. So that's where the disease of it sets in. It starts off as a choice, develops into a disease, and you can argue that it's not a disease all you want to. You can argue it's a choice. I see people talk about it. It's, it's your sin nature. Well, you know what? Um... I've never heard anybody say AIDS or HIV or another STI isn't a disease, even though it can start from a choice, right? Like I had to get a shot once because I had a sexually transmitted choice, or I uh, know people that are diabetic. Uh, They have type 2 diabetes because of sedentary lifestyle and poor eating habits, which is also a choice, which would also be considered sloth and gluttony. Right? So those are sins too. So I guess uh, to some of those uh, people who don't want to see, you know what, maybe it can be both ways, or maybe we just need to look at the science side of it. Maybe God gave us this amazing brain and the ability to think logically so that we could control things and create cures for things and figure out how to help people who were suffering and broken right? I'm sick and tired of a couple different communities out there that, that will literally sit there and downplay what somebody is going through, either because of a spiritual situation or because their certain uh, method of making themselves better work for them so they think it should work for everybody. And if it doesn't work for you, then you're just not trying hard enough or you really don't care. Right, The same knuckleheads that are like, you shouldn't work harder than the person you're working with whenever you're sitting there with five, ten years of recovery working with somebody who might still be high. 
So there's some things we really need to look at. Now maybe I'm getting into some things that I'm going to rant about that I didn't even realize I was going to rant about whenever this first started. But man, we need to treat people with respect and compassion and empathy and unconditional positive regard. And unconditional positive regard just means I love you and you have value simply because you exist. It doesn't matter if you're high, if you're depressed, if you're in a manic state, or if you're a multimillionaire uh, sitting on the back of your beach house overlooking the ocean with a big smile on your face. You all have value regardless. Rich, poor, high, sober, um, cancer, non-cancer, obese, skinny, right? It's like the cabbage patch. I don't care if you're short, small, skinny, or fat. You're just the right size to deserve compassion and love and empathy and respect. We shouldn't respect people just because they, they, they can form into a box that we want them to. We should, we should respect people because they exist simply because they exist, so there's a couple of my rants. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to, to get started on that. I was actually going to rant about something completely differently. In fact, I think I have a couple minutes, so maybe I will. Uh, I had a chance to watch Bosch Season 5. I love the Bosch series. I am a huge fan of not just the Bosch series of books, but also the Lincoln Lawyer series of books that are written by the exact same author. If you haven't read those books, go out and read them. I'm generally like a fantasy guy. But I will tell you, those books grabbed a hold of me. And man, the show, when I watch the show Bosch, it is exactly as I picture him in the books. Perfect casting, perfect acting, everything's amazing. But in this season, I was really excited at first because we look at Harry Bosch going undercover uh, because of a pill mill. And they show somebody who ha who has an opioid overdose, and they show this guy pulling out Narcan and giving her Narcan, and I'm like, awesome, good, they're showing Narcan and they're not demonizing. That's amazing. And then not an episode later, they have somebody who is in a house, uh, an officer, open up a box and then fall out. And wouldn't you know, uh, the narrative that they want to run with is the fact that it was fentanyl and they had to give her two doses of Narcan to bring her out of it. Once again, according to biochemists, according to the people that I have seen that have literally tested a powder that has tested positive for fentanyl and then sat there for five minutes while they talked and rubbed it around in their hands, fentanyl cannot be absorbed through your skin. Please stop that. Stop spreading that myth. I understand we have videos of officers and other people. I think we're looking at psychosomatic reactions and panic attacks. And at least one of the two of the cases, um, I'm pretty sure, but I know at least one of the cases, they tested the powder and it came back 100% methamphetamine. So somebody supposedly had a reaction, an opioid reaction, which would be respiratory depression, inability to breathe, to meth, and it was reversed by Narcan. Sorry, that's not possible. Narcan does not work on meth. All Narcan does is replace the morphine molecules in your opioid receptors for 50 to 70 minutes. So what that means is it restores your ability to breathe for about an hour, and then it dissolves and goes away. Methamphetamine does not impact your ability to breathe unless it shuts your heart down. So that's a complete fallacy. Narcan would not have any impact. 
We also see people in some of the videos hyperventilating because they're overdosing. If you can hyperventilate, but I can't even speak. If you can hyperventilate, that's not an overdose. An overdose is an inability to breathe. It's respiratory depression. It's not breathing. It's not breathing rapidly. And the problem with this false narrative is now we have people that are scared. And if they see somebody who's overdosed, they might not come over and give them care because they're afraid of overdosing if there is any Narcan that might be absorbed through their skin or that might incidentally be breathed through the air. And I know people are going to argue and say, well, you know what, a fentanyl patch, that absorbs through your skin. It also took them over 10 years to find the formulary, the right the right uh, uh, other chemicals to add to it so that it would absorb through your skin. So that is a false narrative. Uh, they're also, they might also point, I think there was a Chechen thing where they had actually weaponized it. Yes, you can weaponize it, but if it's not weaponized, which is not known to be in the United States, then that can't happen. So that's my rant. I think I'm good. So a couple things uh, that I want to leave with. Please, recognize that there's a difference between dependence and addiction, right? Dependence is your body's relying on something that gives you a better quality of life. Addiction is continued use despite negative consequences. We shouldn't have people who truly need their pain medication being impacted because they don't have an addiction problem. They might be dependent on it, but dependent isn't always a bad thing. Most of us are dependent on something from caffeine to sugar, right? And yet we don't see people trying to take us off that. In fact, you probably better not take my coffee away. It might not be a good deal for you. Um, Second thing, we need to shy away from talking about the opioid epidemic. It's not an epidemic. An epidemic is something that is going and progressing and starting to spread. It's here. It's spread, right? And when we focus on the opioid epidemic, we're missing all the other drugs and we're missing all of the the social constructs that are impacting it, like poverty, joblessness, uh, untreated and unaddressed uh, mental health disorders, chronic multi-episodic trauma that hasn't been noticed. So once again, knowing the difference is important and let's move away from opioid epidemic. In closing, I just want to thank you for listening to the podcast. Please join us every week for new episodes. If you want to connect with us further, if you have any questions, topics you'd like to hear in the future, or maybe you would like to be on the podcast sometime, you can connect with us at betterlifeandrecovery.com. There's a Better Life and Recovery page on Facebook, or you can, uh, we're on Twitter, uh, B-L-I-R underscore N-P-O. Also, this podcast is part of the Studio DNA Podcast Network. You can find out more about the network at studiodna.media. Thanks a lot. Y'all have a great week. The podcast critics have spoken. Has this guy ever actually interviewed anyone before? And? Wow, that was long. And I don't have time to listen. Very busy. Sounds like this podcast isn't winning any awards anytime soon. Uh, he did win an award in 2011. Stop living in the past. What else with Corey Mann? Wherever podcasts are sold. Isn't it free? Part of the Studio DNA Podcast Network.